0: Let me welcome you to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. I look forward to this time each day when I can greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Turn up your radio and join our radio family for another message from God's Holy Word. We're continuing our study of the science of creation. True science strongly backs the teaching of the scriptures that our universe came into existence as a direct creation of God not too many thousands of years ago. Biblical creationism is the only technically acceptable explanation of the origin of all things that has ever been advanced. Let me open today's message by reading Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 6. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched out the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who hath laid the cornerstone thereof? Perhaps it's good that we consider these searching questions that the Lord directed to Job. Man was not present when God created this universe. We have no knowledge of such things beyond what God chooses to tell us in his revelation. It's foolishness for men to speculate upon the questions that relate to the creation because man's science based upon his observations and measurements of present natural processes, can never provide information about God's supernatural creation. In addition to the one we considered on the last two broadcasts, there are many other very prominent scientific clocks that strongly testify to the fact that our Earth's age is measured in thousands rather than millions or billions of years. One of these is what's sometimes known as the helium clock. Helium, among the lightest and simplest of all the elements, is a byproduct of radioactivity. Many of the heavier radioactive isotopes are constantly throwing a double proton-neutron pair out of the nucleus as they decay to lighter, more stable isotopes. A double proton-neutron pair is the nucleus of a helium atom. Therefore, when such a nuclear combination picks up two electrons, an atom of helium is formed. If radioactive decay has been taking place for millions and billions of years, helium should be our most plentiful element. In actuality, it's one of our most scarce elements. The only reasonable conclusion is that the radioactive decay of heavy isotopes has not been going on very long. This is again strong evidence that our world has been in existence only a few thousand rather than a few billion years. Let's consider one other clock that strongly implies that our solar system is quite young. This clock has come to light in the recent years of space exploration, but its implications seem to have escaped most scientists and laymen alike. Before the relatively recent landings on the surface of the moon, there was a widespread theory that the moon was covered by a deep layer of meteoric dust. Many reputable scientists predicted that vehicles landing on the moon would simply sink out of sight in a loose dust layer that was predicted to be a hundred feet or more in depth. The reason for this theory is simply this. Scientists were aware that our Earth is being constantly bombarded by space dust. High-altitude research balloons had already provided measurements as to the amount of such meteoric dust that settles upon our planet in a given period of time. Since the moon is subject to the same environmental conditions of space as is the Earth, it was assumed that meteoric dust was falling there at a similar rate. However, the moon has no atmosphere, and therefore dust that falls there simply settles to the surface, never to be disturbed by the forces of erosion. Since scientists know something about the rate of meteoric dust impact on Earth, And since they assumed that the moon was of similar age to the Earth, approximately 4.5 billion years, it was reasonable to expect a 4.5 billion year accumulation of dust on our one natural satellite. But spacecraft and later men landed on the moon. No such deep layer of dust was found. In fact, only a few inches of such dust is actually present on the moon. Instruments placed on the moon have verified that meteoric dust is impacting at a higher rate than was originally predicted But there is no deep accumulation Men know the rate of fall of the dust and they now know something about the depth of accumulation This moon dust clock would seem to provide an excellent way of estimating the age of the moon But the answer comes out in thousands rather than billions of years men therefore choose to reject this bit of evidence It's not necessary for the present to continue to discuss these clocks that are so strongly refuting the secular old earth theories. We've gone far enough into the subject to show that science does not refute the biblical implication that the world is only a few thousand years old. The theories that the earth's age is measured in billions of years come from fields that, although they go under the name of science, are actually operating beyond the limits of the scientific method. Therefore, they are only theories of philosophy that man has developed to explain certain observed evidence which can be explained equally well in other ways. Let's emphasize this fact. A great age for our earth is not the only theory that will explain the observed evidence in the rocks of this planet. There are theories entirely in keeping with the biblical revelation of a young earth that at least equally as well and usually much better explain all observed evidence. Before we turn to an actual comparison of the world's old earth theories and the Bible's young earth revelation, it would be well to consider what the Bible has to say about the philosophy of our present day. Both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, left pointed warnings about the false philosophies of our age. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and uh, verses 20 and 21, we read, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. This warning is not for Timothy only, but for all Christians down through the age. The Bible tells us that faith in the Bible is to be undermined by the opposition of science, falsely so-called. During the last two centuries, we have seen this literally fulfilled. The scripture passage that's found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-5, through 5, was given to us by the Holy Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Peter just before his martyrdom in A.D. 66 or 67. Second Peter is sometimes called Peter's deathbed epistle because it's believed that he wrote it at most only a few days before he was crucified upside down on a Roman cross. Peter deals with the very subject that we have been considering. Keeping this in mind, let's pay very close attention to the warning that he penned over 1,900 years ago. Knowing this first, keep this foremost in mind, that there will come in the last days scoffers. Near the end of this age of grace, there will come a group, a group that is knowledgeable of the Word of God, but one that will scoff at, scorn, ridicule the Word of God, especially the doctrine that Christ is coming again in power and glory and judgment, walking after their own lusts. These scorners of the last days will have no purpose for living other than the gratification of their own fleshly appetites. They are earth dwellers, residents of this world only, in the true biblical sense. They will mock at all the cardinal doctrines of Christianity. However, there is one doctrine that they'll single out for special attention in their scoffing. That is the doctrine of the bodily second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in omnipotence to directly intervene in the affairs of this world. They will hold that God does not and never in the past history of the world has intervened directly in the affairs of man. Where is the promise of his coming? The the end-of-the-age scoffers will say, Show us, where is this Lord of yours that's coming back? Why hasn't he come? Why hasn't he kept his promise? The thought of these earth-dwellers is, of course, is that there is no God who has the power to miraculously intervene in the affairs of the natural world. And on what basis do they feel secure in their belief that supernatural intervention is impossible? It's because they have come to accept a philosophy about the history of the world that allows no room for the supernatural intervention of a supreme being. It is a philosophy that says that the natural law is supreme. It's a philosophy that falsely asserts that even creation can be accounted for by present natural law. And how do they state this philosophy? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Beloved, do you see what these scoffers are saying? This is the gist of their philosophy. Since the time of our forefathers, way back in the limitless past, the natural law of the universe has never been interrupted. Our scientists tell us that the world has been here for 4.5 billion years and that man has been here for at least a million years and there has never been a supernatural intervention in world affairs processes that we see going on at the present time have been responsible for all the past history of the earth. We know that the present order of living things has evolved from a single lower form of life. We ourselves are just products of evolution, and just as the world has been here for billions of years in the past, it will be here for billions of years in the future. The present is the key to the past. Or, as it is said in the words of Peter's prophecy, For since the fathers fell asleep... All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. We have seen Peter's philosophy fulfilled. My time is almost gone for today, but we'll continue to discuss Peter's prophecy on the next broadcast as we proceed with our study of the science of creation. Let me greet you once again in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. I'm glad you've joined us for today's message from God's Holy Word. We're continuing our study of the science of creation. This study is intended to show that the Bible provides the real scientific explanation for the origin of all things, and that evolution provides only a religious explanation. That, of course, is true because evolution is just that, a religion. It's the religion of atheism. Over the last broadcast, we had begun considering the Apostle Peter's prophecy for this age that's found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Let me again read that passage. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were, from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Notice particularly that those carnal scoffers of the last days include creation in their doctrine of uniformity. They say all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Peter prophesies that these earth dwellers will even try to include creation itself in their pseudo-scientific doctrine of uniformity. They say that the creation itself can be explained by present natural processes, even though it will be well known in their day that the most basic of our present laws of preservation, the first law of thermodynamics, forbids real creation. That's why Peter goes on to say, For this they willingly are ignorant of the fact, that by the word of God the heavens came into being of old, and also the earth compacted out of the water and amidst the waters. That's verse 5, literally translated. The scoffers of the end of this age willingly ignore positive scientific proof that our world had to come into existence by special creation. They willingly remain ignorant of this fact because they want to forget God and their uniformitarianistic philosophy permits them to ease their God-created consciousness while so doing. The Apostle Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God in his last communication to the church of this age, warns us against the very philosophy that is rampant today. And it's the very philosophy that's the basis of our secular system that speculates on the past history of the earth and comes up with the thought that earth's history is measured in billions of years. Although scoffers of the last days will willingly ignore the facts of God's intervention in past history persisting in their doctrine of uniformity, Peter points out as positive proof of their error two times when God did definitely intervene in the earth's natural law. One of these times was at the creation itself. By the word of God, the heavens came into being of old and also the earth compacted out of the water and amidst the waters. The second time was at the flood of Noah, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Notice in verse 7 that it was the second of these two events that Peter goes on to use as an illustration of the final destruction of the world. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. This passage from 2 Peter chapter 3 shows us that the Apostle Peter in the power of the Holy Spirit clearly foresaw the widespread belief in and the results of the doctrine of uniformity that is dominant in our world philosophy of today. Peter uttered an emphatic warning against it as one of his last acts on this side of the grave. It's the warning that Christians of our age have not heeded. This lack of heeding Peter's warning although in most part due to ignorance of what lies behind the present old earth teachings of our secular system is the real cause behind the present so-called conflict between the Bible and modern science. The actual conflict is between the Bible and modern pseudoscience, science falsely so-called, because true science supports the Bible in every aspect. Modern old earth theories are all based on the blind adherence to a basic philosophy that is accepted by faith alone by those who purport to investigate the prehistoric history of our planet scientifically. The philosophy of the last-day scoffers can be precisely stated in these words, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation, or in up-to-date terms, the present is the key to the past. If you've had occasion to look at a modern textbook on the subject of historical geology, you'll recognize the statement just quoted. It was originated by Sir Charles Lyell, the father of modern historical geology. It was the hypothesis, that is, the basic assumption in which he placed his faith, that he made the foundation for his entire system of interpreting the history of the earth as it's written in the sedimentary rocks of this planet's crust. Without the acceptance of this beginning hypothesis, Charles Lyell would have had no basis for the system he established. This statement, which must be accepted entirely by faith, there is no possible way that it can be proved, is included somewhere in the first chapter of every textbook that we have today on the subject of historical geology. Again, notice the similarity in these two statements. The present is the key to the past. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. The meaning is the same, only the exact words are different. Modern, older theories are all based on blind adherence to a philosophy that can be technically designated as naturalistic uniformitarianism. This philosophy was predicted and precisely stated by the inspired Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3 and verse 4. The time has come for us to contrast the modern philosophy of naturalistic uniformitarianism with biblical catastrophism. These two philosophies are vastly different, and they are mutually exclusive. That is, if one is true, then the other cannot possibly be true. Either of the two philosophies must be accepted by faith, because all philosophy is beyond the reach of the scientific method. Once one has placed his faith in a basic philosophy, then it's possible for him to erect a system of interpretation that will explain to a greater or lesser degree all the evidence that he finds about him. But the opening hypothesis, the basic assumption, is accepted by faith only, and the system of interpretation is only as good as the basic assumption. All too few Christians realize the tremendous importance that basic presuppositions have in dealing with subjects such as the creation and the age of the earth. As a preliminary requirement, we must all recognize the part that faith and presuppositions play in all our so-called logical reasonings. Science, by the way this word simply means knowledge, can deal only with those things that exist at present. The scientific method, in basic concept, involves reproducibility, that is, experimental repetition. We can only experimentally reproduce those things that involve present natural processes. Therefore, the scientific method is invalid for anything outside the present. When human beings, scientists or otherwise, attempt to interpret the events of the prehistoric past, the past in which no human observer recorded experimental data, then they have left the domain of true science. And when this domain is left behind, then those who choose to speculate, usually without even recognizing it, have entered into the realm of philosophy and religion and faith. The Bible positively denies the basic philosophy which says the present is the key to the past. The Bible tells us that God's revelation is the key to the past. We today have to make a choice as to which of these two philosophies we will accept as our basic presupposition. If we elect to place our faith in the Bible, we will find that in the face of all scientific evidence, this great book of the ages stands firm and cannot be denied. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, the inspired Apostle Paul gives us the real reason for the wide divergence between the secular theories of the world and the revealed things of God found in the Bible. He writes, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Natural man, in his rebellion against his Creator, cannot and will not receive the things that point to the existence and the divine government of the God of creation. Natural man generates theories and erects systems of so-called scientific interpretation that allows him to persist in his denial of God's claims on him. Until one receives the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and therefore becomes a new creature by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit of God, then that one is not equipped to receive the things of God. That is why we find natural man placing his faith in the world's doctrine of uniformity. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue to contrast the basic presuppositions of evolutionary uniformitarianism and biblical creationism on the next broadcast as we proceed with our study of the science of creation. Greetings in the name that is above every name, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let me welcome you to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. I hope you'll give me your undivided attention for the next 15 minutes, for I have a most important message from the Word of God. Our subject is the science of creation. We're contrasting the precepts of evolutionary uniformitarianism and biblical creationism. And in so doing, we're finding that biblical creationism is the true scientific approach to an understanding of the origin of the universe, as well as the subsequent history of our world. On the last broadcast, I was comparing the two models that represent the world's system of understanding and the God-revealed biblical system of understanding. I'd like to continue this theme today. But first, let me read an appropriate scripture passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, in dealing with the two mutually exclusive systems of secular uniformitarianism and biblical creationism and catastrophism, let me again emphasize that we are not dealing with two sciences, but rather with two faiths. God has made us morally responsible creatures. He has given us wills, and he permits us to exercise our wills to accept whatever faith we choose. We may choose rightly and place our faith in his written revelation, or we may choose wrongly and place our faith in the lies of this world. We have a freedom of choice, but we are also morally responsible for how we exercise that choice. If one chooses, he may place his faith in the doctrine of uniformity. This doctrine says that present processes may be extrapolated indefinitely into the past or future And that therefore, in the words of Peter's prophecy, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Or, as our textbooks on historical geology prefer to state, the doctrine of uniformity, the present is the key to the past. If a person, because of his basic presupposition, chooses to place his faith in uniformity in this way, then God has made it possible for him to do so. Once that person has placed his faith in the principle of uniformity, then it is logically possible for him to explain the existence of most of the evidence in the rocks of the earth within this presupposed philosophy. Once one has accepted the philosophy of the present as the key to the past, then one is free to speculate on the ages of the rocks of the earth or the ages of heavenly bodies by projecting presently observed rates of change into that limitless past that was created solely by his basic assumption. Or, he is also free to develop theories about the evolution of living things, evolution of galaxies, evolution of chemical elements, or evolution of everything in the universe. It is extremely difficult for anyone to prove him wrong. Why? It's for the simple reason that all of this speculation is outside of the scientific method. Events and processes of the prehistoric past are not reproducible, and therefore they are not subject to experimental investigation. An endless amount of time might be spent arguing whether the theories are probable or improbable, but this is the type of argument that no one ever wins. Now the point is simply this. The entire superstructure of any old earth or old universe theory is erected upon the foundation of and within the context of pure assumption. And that pure assumption is backed only by the faith of the one who generated or accepts the theory. It's that one's faith in the doctrine of uniformity. Anyone can equally well start with some other basic assumption, and from that starting point he can develop his explanations of the very same data. These explanations will bear no resemblance to those erected on the first foundation. The important thing for us to realize is that one is free to believe anything he wants to believe as long as he's in the realm of pure faith. A person can erect a logical system which seems to explain all the observed data upon any one of a great number of mutually exclusive and totally contradictory basic assumptions. It's simply a matter of where one places his faith. The Christian has every reason for placing his faith in God's revealed Word, our Holy Bible. The basic presuppositions given in the Bible serve as a perfectly good foundation for a system of interpretation of all the Earth's observed data. Man was not present in the day when God created our Earth. Man has no way of probing the events or processes of the prehistoric past. His only source of knowledge is that one who was present the omnipotent Creator himself. The events of the prehistoric past cannot be reconstructed by the scientific method. Before even a pseudo-scientific system of interpretation of Earth's history can be erected, it's necessary to assume some basic philosophy by pure faith. Modern man, acting in complete rebellion against God, has become uniformitarianistic. That is, he has placed his blind faith in the unchangeableness of what is called the natural law. He chooses to believe that nature or the natural law is the governing force of the universe. He believes that it can be extrapolated both into the limitless past and the infinite future. And, for the most part, he fails to realize that both the so-called limitless past and the infinite future are created by nothing more than his basic presupposition. Now, even from a purely philosophical standpoint, can it be granted that the Bible-believing Christian has as much right to place his faith in the revelation of the Bible as the secular philosopher does in the doctrine of uniformity? The Christian, one who has experienced the miracle of the new birth by his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, has a great deal more evidence than just blind faith that the Bible is truly the word of God just as it claims to be. If one does start with the basic assumption that God has caused the Bible to be written as his, God's, own perfect revelation of the origin, purpose, and destiny of the world, then it is entirely possible to understand all the physical evidence of both science and history within that framework. The Bible does not reveal a doctrine of uniformity. Instead, the Bible emphatically denies that uniformity is a valid presupposition for understanding the early history of our planet. The Bible tells us that our world came into existence by what we would call a catastrophic event. An omnipotent, pre-existing God spoke. All parts of our universe came into existence out of nothing by divine fiat. The Bible also tells us that a great deal of what today would be called geologic work was accomplished during the creation period continents were uplifted ocean basins were formed mountains and valleys were molded and this took place prior to the establishment of what today is called the natural law this initial geologic work did not take billions or even millions of years it took only six days according to god's divine revelation the bible also tells us that a little less than 2,000 years after the great event of creation another catastrophic event occurred. The great flood of Noah a catastrophe initiated by divine power not by natural law greatly speeded up the natural processes of erosion and redeposition for a period that lasted a little over a single year. A tremendous amount of geologic work would of necessity have been done during that year also. As a matter of fact it can be shown that natural phenomena after the event was initiated supernaturally, can explain the presence and condition of all fossil-bearing sedimentary rock now present on our earth. Again, this geologic work was not done over billions or millions of years, but in only 371 days according to the biblical revelation. Our Bible definitely warns us that the doctrine of uniformity is not a valid presupposition for theorizing on the history of our planet. The Bible teaches not a doctrine of uniformity, but rather a doctrine of catastrophism. The Bible tells us not the present is the key to the past, but rather God's revelation, the Bible, is the key to the past. The Bible tells us that the scoffers of the last days will use the false hypothesis of the doctrine of uniformity to deny the reality of our Lord's second coming. Therefore, one can interpret the evidence found in our earth, either in terms of biblical creationism and catastrophism, or in terms of evolutionary uniformitarianism. Most of the pertinent data, at least on the broad general plane, can be interpreted within the framework of either system. However, as we proceed, we will all come to recognize that scientific truth has to be bent and battered pretty badly in order to make the details fit within the doctrine of uniformity. The Biblical system is far superior to the system of evolutionary uniformitarianism. It solves a great many problems that have defied solution within the framework of secular historical geology. And it should be pointed out, secular historical geology is the world system of evolutionary based uniformitarianistic naturalism. If we were to open any currently used textbook on historical geology, we would find somewhere in the introductory chapter, the statements of the hypothesis the presupposition upon which all studies in the field of historical geology are based. It goes something like this. In order to interpret the history of our earth as it's written in the rocks, we must first realize that the present is the key to the past. This is the doctrine of uniformity as stated in the words of the one who's sometimes known as the high priest of uniformity, Sir Charles Lyell. If we grant this initial presupposition, then we have departed from biblical teachings and we have aligned ourselves with the uniformitarianist. The Bible, not the present, is the key to the past. This is the underlying reason why there is no harmonization between the biblical view of world history and the secular view of world history. The two views are erected on two separate presuppositions, and these two presuppositions are mutually exclusive. My time is gone. We'll continue our study of The Science of Creation on the next broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. Let me welcome you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. I look forward to this time each day when I can meet with our radio family around the Word of God. I'm continuing to speak on the subject, The Science of Creation. On the last several broadcasts, I've been comparing the world system of evolutionary uniformitarianism with God's system of biblical creationism and catastrophism. We've found that both of these systems are based on pure faith. The point of departure is the basic presuppositions that underlie the two separate concepts. Therefore, one would expect the superstructures erected upon these two mutually exclusive hypotheses to be vastly different. The point of departure is at the very foundation of the two systems, not in the logical superstructures built on those two foundations. No proof is offered in the historical geology textbooks for the statement, the present is the key to the past. The student is asked to believe it by blind, unguided faith. Is the Christian asking more when he states the Bible is the key to the past and then asks the student to accept that on faith? this is not blind unguided faith for there are many and varied positive proofs that the bible is the word of god just as it claims to be the bible gives us the supernaturally revealed past history of our earth let's turn our attention to psalm 104 the psalmist begins this great discourse with an address to jehovah god in the opening verse bless the lord o my soul o lord my god thou art very great Thou art clothed with honor and majesty. Then, as the psalmist begins to enumerate the mighty works of God, we come to these words in verses 5 through 9. Who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever? Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys unto the place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. In these words, the inspired psalmist, writing many years after the actual events of the creation and the flood, verifies their historical authenticity and correctly ascribes both of these events to the mighty power and sovereignty of Jehovah God. In expressing these truths, The psalmist is not reflecting a view that was unique in his day, and it came to him only by divine revelation. Up until the middle of the 19th century AD, there was a general belief throughout most of the world that the biblical accounts of the creation and the flood were historical. Most men of science, even in the early part of the 19th century, correctly considered that the water-deposited stratified rocks with their entombed animal and plant fossils offered evidence of the action of the Great Flood. The first widely read formal denial of this belief that took place in the so-called Christian world came in 1785 with the publication of naturalist James Hutton's book, Theory of the Earth. This book was the first formal work on a technical plane that took the view that present slow processes of erosion and redeposition were capable of explaining the existence of the sedimentary rocks of our Earth's crust. As the so-called age of rationalism gained momentum, in place of belief in the biblical revelation, a philosophy of uniformity and evolution in nature became popular. The basis for this departure from God's word rested solely on the newly heralded principle of uniformity. The principle of uniformity gained most of its popularity during the middle of the 19th century through the efforts of Sir Charles Lyell, a British lawyer turned geologist. Sir Charles proposed that our earth's sedimentary rocks did not accumulate during catastrophic flooding. Rather, according to him, they were the result of extremely slow processes of erosion and redeposition, similar to what we see going on around us today. Lyell's philosophy allowed, first, an immense period of time for our planet's existence, second, nearly unchanging process rates and material conditions, and third, most of all, invariant natural laws. Lyell and his followers accepted all of this by faith. These beliefs came from the religion, not from the science, of this apostate lawyer. Many men, desiring to find some way to explain the record in the rocks other than by a catastrophic judgment of an omnipotent creator, soon followed Lyell. Our system of historical geology today is still, by and large, unchanged from the very structure developed by Sir Charles Lyell. Sir Charles was the designer of the first geologic column, that diagram that arranges an artist's drawing of rock so as to illustrate the supposed 4.5 billion year history of our earth. This column today, changed very little from the way it was first drawn, is the very core of our secular system for the interpretation of the earth's history and the earth's age. The geologic column is perhaps the most formidable obstacle faced by the Christian today as he stands torn between the teachings of the Bible and the teachings of the secular world. In this column, one suddenly finds himself confronted by this array of so-called facts. The facts are arranged and systematized, and they're all endorsed by the world's most noted scientists. The effect is sometimes overwhelming. Here, the seeker is told, are the coal facts. The chart shows the oldest rocks are at the bottom, and perhaps even more disturbing, in these oldest rocks are found the fossils of the lowest, the most primitive, forms of life. The youngest rocks are at the top, They contain the remains of the highest forms of life, and between the two extremes, there's found a steady upward progressive development of plant and animal life. There's one extremely significant piece of information that is never contained in the chart. That piece of information is nothing resembling the entire series of strata shown in the geologic column has ever been found together in one place anywhere on the face of the earth. In the first chapter of his epistle to the Romans, the Apostle Paul describes the terrible downward path followed by men who, in the face of God's divine revelation, turn their backs on him and go their own way. In verses 21 and 22, we read these words. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools we would have to search diligently to find better words anywhere to describe our modern-day philosophers that have developed the system of understanding of our planet's history that we call historical geology. Totally ignoring the revelation of God's Word, the authors of this system, which, by the way, are quite few in total number, have hypothesized the present is the key to the past, and they have proceeded to interpret the evidence in the rocks within the framework of that presupposition. The supposed system of historical geology that they have built up is based entirely on the theory of organic evolution. This system leaves no room for an omnipotent creator or for a personal god. According to this system, today's world is said to be the product of slow processes of evolution. They say that these processes have been going on for millions and even billions of years. And, according to this system of belief, these processes will continue onward and upward through endless future time. This is the accepted view of our age. Writers of the science textbooks used in our schools propound this theory as truth. Youth of today are brought up on this theory throughout the entire duration of their stay in our modern educational system. Anyone daring to question this theory is immediately considered as uninformed or a fanatic. But nevertheless, the theory, as proposed, is irreconcilable with Scripture. Every attempt at compromise or harmonization is a surrender of truth as revealed in God's Word. And this surrender is in favor of mere human speculation and hypothesis. That is, in plainer words, human guessing. So we have to ask, Are the theories of historical geology a sacred cow? Do Christians demonstrate ignorance and fanaticism when they refuse to accept the teachings of modern historical geology? We've now come to the point where we should examine some of the theories of historical geology. We need to find out more about these theories that contradict the scriptural revelation of Earth's history. We need to because these are the theories that have become a stumbling block to the faith of millions. These are the theories that have turned the youth of our last few generations away from the word of God and in so doing have led to the mess of today's world. According to the definition of William B. Scott in his book, An Introduction to Geology, Geology is a study of the structure, the history, and the development of the earth and its inhabitants as revealed in the rocks. Historical geology deals specifically with the last two items. Now, it's not geology in general with which we have a quarrel. Rather, it's historical geology. Historical geology is only a small part of the total field of the true science called geology. Historical geology is a so-called science that purports to deal with origins. And origins is a subject that is totally outside the realm of true science. I see that my time for today is almost gone. We'll consider some of the theories of historical geology as we continue our study of the science of creation on the next broadcast. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. Thank you for tuning in to be with us for another study from God's Holy Word. I'm speaking on the subject of the science of creation. Creationism is a science, at least it is to a much greater degree than is evolutionary uniformitarianism. Biblical creationism is the only technically acceptable theory of the origin of the universe. On the last broadcast, we were just beginning to talk about the uniformitarianistic theories of historical geology. I'd like to continue with that theme today. However, first let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The expression, the God of this world, refers to Satan. Although Paul here speaks specifically of the gospel, from this passage we can begin to understand why man, in his natural state, refuses to believe any of the word of God. It's because the Word of God brings him to a confrontation with the fact that a God of judgment does exist. We can begin to understand why man, even in the face of logical reasoning that points to the truth of God's Word, will turn the other way and believe a lie. Satan, the God of this world, not only has the power to blind the minds of natural men, he has done so. The time has come for us to consider the so-called science of historical geology. Let's that ask the questions, are the theories of historical geology a sacred cow? Do Christians demonstrate ignorance and fanaticism when they refuse to accept the teachings of modern historical geology? In order to answer these questions, it's necessary for us to delve into the evidence, that is, the facts, that the theories of historical geology are supposed to explain. Let's define some geologic terms. Rocks, as they're found on the surface and in the crust of the Earth, are divided by composition into three major classes. First, there is igneous rock, which is also sometimes known as crystalline rock or primitive rock. By the way, notice the built-in a priori concepts of age and evolutionary processes suggested by the term primitive rock. Igneous rock is considered the foundation rock of the Earth's crust. According to the teachings of historical geology, it's the oldest rock. It had its beginning in the original primitive structure of our planet's crust. Igneous rock is massive, that is, it's not laid down in layers, it's not stratified, and it contains no fossils. Granite is a well-known form of igneous rock. Second, there's the type of rock that's known as sedimentary rock. Sedimentary rock is supposedly the younger derivative rock of the Earth's crust. Now, the origin of sedimentary rock is quite different from that of igneous rock. Rock formations of this class were laid down by the erosive deposition action of water, wind, or ice. Sedimentary rock is also called stratified rock because it's layered and spread out over large areas. Each layer of what is known as a stratum represents one uninterrupted deposition of material. Now, a stratum is a collection of layers of the same mineral substances which occur together. A stratum can consist of just one or of many layers. The divisions between the layers are due to longer or shorter intervals in the deposition process or to a change in the composition of the material being deposited. Nearly all sedimentary rocks contain fossils. As examples of sedimentary rocks, we can cite shale, sandstone, and limestone. And as the third classification, we have metamorphic rock. The word metamorphic means changed, so metamorphic rock is changed rock. This is a rock which has undergone change from one type to another either by heat, pressure, or chemical change, or by all three. Marble is perhaps the best-known example of metamorphic rock. According to geologic theory, the materials of which the last two classes of rocks are composed were derived from the chemical decay or mechanical abrasions of igneous rock. Because of this, they are also called derivative or secondary rocks. The hundreds of feet of stratified rock covering our earth's surface are said to have been slowly formed from the original igneous rock by natural processes of erosion and redeposition operating in the manner that we see them operating today. Millions or even billions of years were required for the secondary rocks of the earth to reach their present state according to the theories of historical geology. Those who believe in biblical creationism have no quarrel with the evidence that's found in the rocks of the earth. It's the interpretation of this evidence that we call into question. We refuse to accept the basic presupposition the present is the key to the past. All of the time estimates for the age of the earth are based on this presupposition and in the life succession theory of evolution. The Bible provides a quite different but perfectly valid presupposition for interpreting the same evidence. We read in Psalm 14 and verse 1 and also Psalm 53 and verse 1, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. This opening line of both the 14th and the 53rd Psalms give us keen insight into the heart of man as he's born into this world, man in his natural state. The fool, the empty person, hath said, not with his tongue only, but deep in his inner being, his heart, No God, no God for me. I am the maker of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. Here we have the fallen, feeble creature man, foolishly crying out in his defiance of the all-powerful creator of the universe. No wonder we find unregenerated man looking at the record of God's sovereign judgment of rebellious man, written in the very rocks of the earth, And finding no sign of the Creator there they are all gone aside they are all together become filthy there's none that doeth good no not one the fool hath said in his heart no God natural men have generated their own interpretation of the meaning of the sedimentary rocks that make up the major part of the outer layer of the crust of our earth in the face of the biblical revelation they have assumed that the present is the key to the past and they have continued from this incorrect assumption to the system of historical geology that is so widespread in its acceptance today. The textbooks and the scientific papers written within the field of historical geology always give a very graphic account of the slow, multi-billion-year rock-forming process which historical geologists have assumed is responsible for the present accumulation of sedimentary rocks on the surface of this planet. Always these graphic accounts are recorded by the author with positive and dogmatic assurance that what he tells the reader is absolutely true. One would almost think that the author had been there and watched the processes that he describes because he's so sure of all the details. Usually the author knows the exact time, plus or minus a few million years, required for a given process to accomplish a given result. And yet, if one looks closely, he will find that these dogmatic assertions are never based on demonstrated facts. They're based on mere hypothesis, which has never been verified, and which is completely incapable of ever being verified. Now, no one will deny that sedimentary rocks are being formed today, and that they have been being formed ever since the days of creation sedimentary rocks are being formed and have been formed from mechanical erosion and chemical decay of other kinds of rocks but the claim that all the sedimentary rocks now in existence have been formed at today's slow deposition rates and by the same identical processes is a conclusion that is totally unwarranted by the evidence but this is not stopped unregenerated natural man based upon the hypothesis that the present is the key to the past And the life succession hypothesis of biology, that is the theory of evolution, modern historical geologists have constructed an elaborate geologic column, which is essentially a geologic timetable. The column was originally drawn by Sir Charles Lyell during the 19th century, and it's used today in essentially its original form. This column has been designed to demonstrate in a very tangible manner, first, the alleged sequence in which the various strata of our planet's sedimentary rocks were gradually built up over an immense time period, and second, the alleged time required for slow and laborious processes of evolution to bring the Earth to its present state of development. This geologic column, beyond doubt, is one of the most formidable hurdles faced by the seeker today who desires to believe that the Bible is God's inspired word as it claims to be. The student, perhaps with early Christian training, enters our secular education system and suddenly finds himself confronted by this array of so-called facts. He finds that these so-called facts have been arranged and systematized. And he's told that they're accepted and supported by the world's most noted scientists. The effect is overwhelming. Here are the hard facts, and they cannot be denied, the student is told, over and over again. The effect is devastating. Genesis, or at least the traditional interpretation of Genesis, cannot compete with the geologic column in the mind of the average student. And yet, almost nothing in this column is based on demonstrated fact. The fool hath said in his heart, No God my time is almost gone for today we'll continue our study of the science of creation on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today thank you and welcome to today's broadcast of the independent faith ministry of the bible stands it's so good to greet you once again in the name of our lord and savior jesus the christ i'm glad you've joined us by radio today for another message from God's Holy Word. We're continuing our study of the science of creation. Biblical creationism is a much better technical explanation for the origin of the universe and the subsequent history of our Earth than is evolution and uniformitarianism. This is the thesis of this entire study. On the last broadcast, we were considering the theories of historical geology. Let's first read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, and then continue with this discussion. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Scripture insists on the principle that's stated in Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Any knowledge or wisdom that is not founded in a spirit of reverence toward God and toward the revelation contained in His written Word is just the wisdom of this world. It's founded on falsehood. God has promised to bring to nothing the foolish reasonings of unregenerated natural man. We've spoken of the geologic column that artists, drawing that's so necessary for the understanding of our secular system of historical geology in this column so-called facts concerning the geologic history of this world are arranged and systematized the geologic column as originally drawn in the 19th century by Sir Charles Lyell with a few minor modifications made by his successors has become the Bible of modern historical geology those who have examined this chart are aware that it shows the oldest rocks Those that form the foundation of the earth's crust are at the bottom. And what is perhaps more disturbing to the average evangelical Christian in these so-called oldest rocks are found the fossils of the lowest, that is, most primitive, forms of life. Those rocks that have been designated as young are at the top. These younger rocks contain the remains of the highest forms of life. And between these two extremes, the geologic column shows that there's found a steady, upward, progressive development of plant and animal life. Here is proof, we're told, not only of the great age of the earth, but also of the life succession theory of biology, that is, the theory of evolution. Here is the necessary proof written in the very foundation rocks of the earth, even Genesis chapters 1-11, through or at least the traditional interpretation of Genesis chapter 1 through 11, cannot stand in the face of such overwhelming evidence. And let me tell you, this speaker is one person who vividly remembers the effect this problem produced on me during the educational years of my early life. At first glance, it certainly does appear that the Bible is defeated. Moses, the human writer of the Pentateuch, goes down as a fraud. And with him goes the Lord Jesus Christ who quoted from the Pentateuch and called it the Word of God. The Christian faith seems to have been proven hopelessly out of date. But this is only at first glance. Most people, when confronted with the geologic column, believe, of course, that the geologists have actually found these various strata of rocks lying together in the exact serial order that's depicted in the diagram. They believe in good faith that the strata are actually stacked, one following the other in regular succession, just as shown, in at least one, if not many, localities. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing resembling the complete series shown in the geologic column has ever been found together in one place anywhere on the face of the earth. Anyone who reads these words can verify this for himself just by carefully reading any of the standard works in the field of historical geology. Here's a quotation from a paper by T.C. Chamberlain, a man who's sometimes known as the dean of American geologists. He's speaking of the geologic column. It should be understood that it's not possible to proceed directly downward through the whole succession of bedded rocks but that the edges of the various beds may be found here and there where they've been brought up to the surface by workings and tiltings or exposed by the wearing away of the beds which once overlay them. The full series of strata is made out only by putting together these data gathered throughout all lands even when this is done, an absolutely complete series cannot be made out or at least has not been. In other words, this wonderful geologic column, this ingenious ladder with its series of rocks and species of contained fossils that show the increasing complexity of life with passing time is nothing but a purely artificial creation based on what its designers already believed. It does not exist anywhere in nature. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Let me read Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4. Why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder, and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Natural man, as born into this world, is a fallen creature. He's in rebellion against his Creator and in his rebellion he will grasp at any straw, any system of belief, regardless of how illogical or ridiculous it is, if it keeps him from facing the fact that he is a morally responsible agent to his creator, and that someday he will have to face a God of judgment. The fool hath said in his heart, No God. There is very little evidence, and absolutely no proof, that the geologic column is anything but a pure fabrication of man. It should be again emphasized that when we deal with any subject that purports to explain origins, we're not dealing with science, but rather with philosophy and religion. The type of information set forth in the geologic column represents not scientific findings, but the things man would like to believe about the history of this planet. Historical geology is not a science, but in a very real sense, it's a religion. It's the religion of atheism. The complete geologic column, or anything approaching it, has never been found anywhere in nature. It's strictly an a priori creation, representing what the designers already believed and not what has been discovered by scientific research. Now in addition to the fact that this exact order of strata has never been found, the assigned time values associated with the various geologic periods it depicts are also purely hypothetical. The claim is made that the fossil-bearing sedimentary rocks add up to a total of something over 90,000 feet for the thickness of the entire geologic column. But the fact is, there is no place on the face of the earth where sedimentary rocks of anything near this total thickness have ever been found. In reality, it's impossible to go down more than a few thousand feet anywhere in the world before hitting a bedrock of granite. Only in a few places have oil wells been drilled to a depth approaching 20,000 feet before the bottom of the sedimentary rock column is reached. The greatest depth to which man has ever found sedimentary rock at any place in the world is approximately 22,000 feet. This figure is only a little over 20% of the predicted depth of the geologic column, and this is the maximum, remember, not the average, thickness of our planet's sedimentary rock layer. Now, it's possible to understand how, in an age-long process of erosion, shifting, and redeposition, repeated over and over again, that some areas of the earth would have much less sedimentary rock than the predicted average. But when we speak of an average, it's mandatory that some areas have a depth of sedimentary rock strata greater than the average, if some are to have less. You see, the material has not been destroyed by repeated erosion and redeposition. It has to exist somewhere. The rock that's removed from one locale must be redeposited at another. The fact is, there is not sufficient volume of sedimentary rock present on this planet to yield the average depth of sedimentary rock that's required by the geologic column. Therefore, we can place absolutely no confidence in the time values that the chart associates with the various periods. Now, as we delve further into the teachings of historical geology, we find that the names on the geologic column, Cambrian, Devonian, Silurian, and other such names, are simply arbitrary labels by which geologists classify certain rocks found in various parts of the earth which happen to contain certain types of fossils. Let me emphasize this. The sedimentary rocks of the earth are not named and classified on the basis of the character and chemical composition of the rock. Rather, they're named and classified entirely on the basis of fossils that happen to be contained in the rock. Geologists classify and date rocks by characteristic fossils, index fossils, and on no other basis. Now we begin to see the true nature of the so-called science of historical geology. It's based entirely on the acceptance of the theory of biological evolution. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. My time is almost gone. We'll continue our discussion of the religion of historical geology as we bring the next part of the science of creation on the next broadcast. Let me greet you in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. I'm happy that you've joined us for another message from God's Word. Our continuing topic for this series of messages is the science of creation. We're comparing the secular world's theories of evolutionary uniformitarianism with God's revelation of biblical creationism as it's contained in His Holy Word. And we're finding that the facts of science better support God's revelation than they do man's evolutionary theories. Before we continue our discussion of the pseudoscience of historical geology, let me once again read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. This warning that the Apostle Paul directed to the young pastor Timothy is of course not for Timothy only, but for all Christians down through this age of grace. It's a warning that should not be taken lightly. During this past 200 years, Satan has carried on a heavy offensive against the Christian faith by his oppositions of science, falsely so called. It's sad but true that many professing such false sciences have erred concerning the faith. We can be assured that one of the sciences falsely so called that Paul had in mind was the religion of historical geology. We've seen that geologists classify rocks into the various time periods that are shown on the geologic column, not on the basis of their character and composition, but rather by the fossils contained in them. No one denies that an experienced geologist can correlate strata from one point to another on the basis of character and composition if the separation distance between the points is not too far. But geologists themselves are the first to agree that no index or guide exists that makes it possible for correlating strata over wide areas except the index fossil. We may quote directly from geologist William B. Scott's textbook, An Introduction to Geology for the Geologists' Own Affirmation of this Fact. Quote, In the present state of knowledge, lithological similarity is not a safe guide. Unquote. Lithological similarity means similarity of character and composition. Now, as we dig deeper, so as to speak, into the geologic column, we find that the historical geologists have an acute problem. As the formations are actually found in the earth, the so-called oldest rocks, as classified by index fossils, are not always at the bottom, as the geologic column shows them to be. Any of the formations, regardless of the fossil classified age, can be, and have been, found at the bottom or at the top. Remember also the mineral composition of the rock, or characteristics of the rock, such as degree of hardness and so forth, is said to have nothing to do with the rock's age. It seems a paradox that moon scientists today are using the hardness of lunar stones as a criterion for determining their age when this characteristic is said to have nothing to do with the age of earth rocks. Now, when one investigates, he finds that geologists have classified certain soft and unconsolidated rocks as Cambrian and Ordovician periods that are supposed to go back to the earliest ages of the earth. Again, they have classified hard and crystalline rocks, frequently found next to granite in the very young categories, tertiary and quaternary. All of this is done solely on the basis of the index fossil found in the formations. We've come to the place where our emphasis should be upon an extremely important fact. Historical geologists classify rocks as old or young on the sole basis of the fossils that are found in them there is no other basis for such classification and old rock is classified as old because it contains the so-called primitive life forms young rock is classified as young because it contains the so-called higher life forms nothing else is taken into consideration it makes absolutely no difference what a rock looks like or at what level in the Earth's crust it's found. It makes no difference whether it's sandstone, limestone, or shale. If it has so-called old fossils, then it is classified as old. If it has so-called new fossils, it's classified as new. If it has a mixture of index fossils, as sometimes happens, then it's a mystery. In other words, we've discovered the rather startling fact that the hypothetical geologic column is based not on what is actually revealed in the rocks of the earth, but rather on the theory of biological evolution. Now, what we've uncovered is the most glaring type of fallacy. We have two fields of science, falsely so-called, that lean together like a pair of stacked cards. If one falls, the other falls also, because there is no other means of support. If the evolutionary biologist is asked to produce his evidence for the assumption that the more primitive forms of life are also the oldest, then he promptly turns to the historical geologist and says, he always finds the most primitive fossils in the oldest rocks. And if the historical geologist is asked how he dates his rocks, he says, why, by the index fossils they contain, of course. And we find that we have a perfect example of circular reasoning. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. This is the question that today must be directed toward those who have been turned from the word of God by the old earth theories of the present-day philosophy of historical geology. It is a fact that the historical geologist dates his rock formations simply on the criterion of the index fossils that they contain. Old rocks are classified as old because they contain what the evolutionary biologist has classified as primitive life forms. Young rocks are classified as young because they contain the fossils of higher life forms. The index fossil is always used as the deciding criterion in rock dating. It makes no difference what the rock looks like on what level it's found in the Earth's crust, what it's made of, or anything else. If it contains those fossils that have been classified by the biologist as primitive, then it's old. If it contains those fossils that the biologist classifies as advanced, then it's young. Historical geology dates the rocks of the Earth in accordance to the position of their contained fossils on the evolutionary scale. Despite all this, The evolutionary biologists turn to historical geology as the proof that their theory is true. They point out that the most primitive life forms are always found in the oldest rocks. The more advanced life forms are always found in the youngest rocks. The in-between life forms are always found in rocks of intermediate age and if one arranges the rocks in the order of their decreasing age then one can see the steady upward progression of the life forms as they evolve. Listener, do you see what happens when we place the two so-called sciences of historical geology and evolutionary biology close to one another so that we can see the big picture? We have a perfect example of circular thinking. The men who propound the theories from both of these two fields decided what they wanted to believe before they ever looked at the evidence. Man wants to believe the life succession theory of evolutionary biology because evolution removes God from man's system of thought. Evolution makes man his own god, because in this thought system, man becomes the highest product of a process that took place purely by laws of chance. There is no being who is superior to man, because man is at the top of the evolutionary scale. Man, the product of blind evolution, is sufficiently advanced that he can understand the principles of evolution, so now he can control the process. With this capability, man can progress onward and upward, responsible to no one but himself. To natural man, this is an overpowering religious idea. It frees natural man from responsibility to a sovereign God and creator. Man would otherwise see himself as he is, a creature who must give an account to an almighty God. Without evolution, man would see a clear image of some future judgment day before an almighty creator. So, the evolutionary biologist and the historical geologist both place their faith in the theory of evolution before they ever investigated the evidence. The historical geologist dates the rock formations of the earth in accordance with the index fossils contained. Then the evolutionary biologist uses the dates that the historical geologist has assigned to the rocks to prove his theory of evolution. This fallacy has completely beclouded the thinking of a great number of otherwise intelligent men the fact is there is no man on earth who knows enough about either the rocks of the earth or the fossils in them to be able to prove in any fashion fit to be called scientific that any particular kind of fossil is actually older or younger than any other kind in other words No one can prove or even speculate outside the assumption of the theory of evolution that the Cambrian Tribalite is one day older or younger than the Cretaceous dinosaur or the tertiary mammal or modern man. In both historical geology and evolutionary biology, we are not dealing with science. Evolution is a religion. It's the religion of atheism. Charles Hodge, a great theologian of the last century, once wrote an analytical paper on the theory of evolution, and he ended it with the following statement. We have thus arrived at the answer to our question, what is Darwinism? It is atheism. This does not mean, as before said, that Mr. Darwin himself and all who adopt his views are atheists, but it means that his theory is atheistic. How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity, and scorners delight in their scorning? And fools hate knowledge. I see that my time is almost gone. We'll continue our study of The Science of Creation on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today.